Turn this morning, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. Study I've entitled The Real Deal. This morning I want to kind of preface this by reminding you that this is looking backwards a little bit. It actually continues the thought uh, that we would call from the last chapter. And it's specifically talking about uh, the, the standard that's been set. And that standard that's been set is actually the last portion of verse 32 where it says, even as God in Christ forgave you. And so he's going to go on now to tell us to be imitators of Christ. What does that mean? What does that look like? How how do we discern that? And this morning I want to really focus in on the gracious living that we can now undertake because we're God's children and also at the same time realize that that gracious living comes at a very high cost to God, cost Jesus' life. It's not cheap. It's a very real message, and it's a very real calling upon our life. And who we're imitating is none other than Jesus, our Savior. And so all we know, really, if you want to look at it this way, and I think it's the best way to look at it, All we know about Father God, we got because of Jesus the Son, didn't we? I mean, no man has seen God. We understand God's dealing in the Old Testament, but in a very practical way, what we know about God, we know because of Jesus. What he did, how he lived, what he said, and ultimately what he put forward as a way and a manner of living while he was on earth. And so the one we're imitating becomes very, very clear. It's none other than Jesus himself. And so this morning, let's take the first five verses and let's read them and then we'll pray. And therefore, looking back, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. becomes very clear, you see, and we need to look at the things that are here. But it becomes very clear that all of the good works and all of the doing, just as he's already said, isn't going to do us a whole lot if we miss the message. And the message is, God is love. So walk in love. But walking in love doesn't mean we get to walk any way we want. Walking in love means to be walking in a manner that's well-pleasing to God and like Christ. So there is a standard. So he goes on to say, walk in love as Christ also loved us and had given his life for us, given himself for us, given of himself. You can put all those words in there. He himself gave himself for us so that we'd have someone to imitate. becomes very clear. An offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling aroma. And he goes on with the not-so-good news. And remember last week I told you I wasn't going to do a ten-part message on all these things that are in here because none of you had come back. Uh, We also can't avoid what Scripture plainly teaches, so we're going to look at another kind of tough passage this morning, but we're going to look at it in light of the real deal. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you 
as is fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, no unclean person, no covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray, God, that you would just give us the right balance. Lord, help us to receive from the power of your Spirit into each one of our hearts the truth of your Word, Lord, the power of it. May we not overemphasize one point for another. May we walk as you intend. God, help us to to dwell in the center of that sweet spot that glorious relationship that we have with you by grace and through faith. Lord, help us to love you as you have loved us and help us then to love others. Father, we're grateful for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning, that your grace abounds. We bless you. We praise you. Speak to us, we pray through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul's admonition here, And it's an admonition, and it's a strong admonition, is that we be the real deal. And and the word here that's translated, and I want you to really lay hold of this, to imitate, to be an imitator of God, to, to, we would say, mimic, or perhaps the word mime comes to mind for you. To mimic, to literally Look at the Lord, look at his life, his character, how he, con- how he controlled uh, the very power of God in meekness, in humility, in love, his holiness, all of those things. To mimic that, to let him be such an example that we can honestly say when someone sees us, which is the reason for the name Christian, They see Jesus. Christian means little Christ. So when we say that we are Christians, when I say I'm a disciple, when I say I'm a follower, when I say that I live by Christ-like principles, what I'm actually declaring is, if you look at me, you ought to be able to see Jesus. Now, admittedly, None of us are going to do that perfectly. Amen? So please don't be under bondage. We're all going to have our little warts and our failures. But the bottom line is, that is the goal. That's who I want to be like. I want people to be able to look at my life and go, Wow, you know, I was reading through my Bible, and those things that my Bible says, those are the things that I see. And this concept here of walking is really the word imitation. As we walk in love, as we walk in light, as we walk in wisdom, these walks that are throughout this chapter, as we look at these things, as we walk in truth, these are simply replications of what God actually is. Now, to help you understand that, I like the word mimic or the word mime, because it helps me understand exactly what that means. Because I have two sons. And so mimic is very, very clear to me. 
And I want to tell you, it's very clear in both the positive and the unfortunately negative. Because I can tell you that as I've lived my life before my children, they have taken up some of my good habits in the Lord. They're both servants. They love the Lord Jesus. They're going to be the first ones to sign up for stuff to, you know, need something done. They're going to help. They've learned a few things, I think, from their dad that's good. A whole lot like Jesus. They have mimicked my behavior. To mimic someone is to look at an example and to try and replicate it. That's what a mimic does. But I actually like the word mime, and both of those words come from this word that's translated from the Greek into English, imitator. I like the word mime because a mime doesn't use any words, amen? You know, I'm actually scared of them for the most part. But, you know, because they're they're like clowns. I mean, nobody likes clowns. I don't even know why we have clowns. I'm afraid of clowns. It's like when a clown comes, I'm like, I'm I'm running. I'm out of here. I think Stephen King did that to us all. But a mime, when you think of a mime, what you think of is those crazy French guys with the weird hats and they, you know, they put their hands up and they're doing all these things. And as they mime whatever it is that they're trying to communicate to you, they don't have to use words. They're completely silent. Amen? Now imagine that your testimony was so powerful in Christ that you didn't need to speak words for people to see Jesus. That's a pretty important aspect of this. Because you're not going to stand up and deliver a message at work every lunchtime, you know. All right, everybody sit down and open your Bibles. You know, you're probably going to have very few people in the lunchroom. You'll probably get fired eventually. But you know what? You can live Christ-like so much so that they actually see Jesus even though you've not said anything. It's the same Greek root. So whether it's mimic or whether it's mime, it means the same thing. That I I saw and I believe and I know who Jesus is. And because I do, I act like him as best I possibly can. And as I do that, other people can look at my life and go, wow, I'm reading through here. Love, tenderness, gentleness, meekness, self-control against such things. Paul would say there is no law. You see, the law is negated by living like Christ. That's the beauty of it. And so as we think on these things, and we're going to see here now uh, a number of examples, and, and some of those characteristics are mentioned here in our passage, because what that looks like is actually very clear, because your Bible declares it. People often say, well, how would I know? Well, read the word. Study God's word. It says very plainly how Jesus acted. It says what he did. It gives us a very clear understanding of who God is because of it. As I've shared with you before, were it not for mercy and grace, none of us are going to heaven. Amen? None of us. I don't care how great you are. Billy Graham's not getting into heaven because he's better than everybody else. He's getting into heaven. Because of God's mercy and God's grace. Same is true for Pastor Chuck. Same is true for Jeff Gill. The same is true for all of you. Apart from God's mercy and grace, none of us get there. We can't do it. We, we couldn't. We wouldn't do it. And so what does mercy and grace do when it comes into contact with our world? You see, that's the question for us. Because we are saved by grace and through faith. 
We're, we're not saved by good works. We're not saved by being good. We are saved, and then because we're saved, we get better. Kind of like blue cheese. The longer it's around, the better it gets. But you're still stinky. At times. Unless you're on a salad with walnuts and cherries. Just saying. Lunch is coming. So Paul makes this argument, imitate Christ. Imitate God. Imitate the Lord. You can use any one of the Godheads. You could imitate the Holy Spirit. You're going to come up with the same thing because they're all God. Amen? So whether you say God or whether you say Jesus or whether you say the Holy Spirit, you're imitating God himself. That's the picture. You watch your kids. You know, they walk like you. They talk like you. You ever seen a little kid like pushing a lawnmower and does it just like dad except doesn't quite get the job done? But let me throw a little negative thing at you. They also imitate your bad habits too, don't they? You ever heard your kids talking like you talk? You know, you've been sharing something with your wife, you didn't think they were listening, and they're like, yeah, that guy's a dirty scum. (laughs) Yikes. Where'd you get that? Oh, you said it last week, Dad. (laughs) Or maybe they pick up their first cigarette. And again, don't please don't be under bondage. I'm not trying to hurt anybody here. I'm just simply saying that children imitate their parents, good or bad, positive, negative, mouthing words of rebuke, those kinds of things. They learn to imitate behavior, and we know this through the behavioral sciences. That's why people are so prone through imitative behavior to become exactly like those things that they have seen acted out in life. Abusers become abusers very often. Amen? That's that's just the truth. Alcoholics have a tendency to follow along with other people who are also alcoholics. So you you can look on the negative side of this. But I really want to focus in on the positive side. And so there are three admonitions that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. God is love. And remember, we're to walk in love. That's what 1 John says. That's why I put those other scriptures up there for you. So 1 John 4.8, very plainly, God is love. It's what he is. It's who he is. It's what he does. It's how he acts. Everything he does, he does from a singular motivation of love. God even chastises us for love. He corrects us for love. He, he works in our lives even in what we would call the negative ways in love. Amen? For who, loving his own children, does not correct them. Amen? And so Father God corrects us in love. He's not out to just simply, you know, well, I'm God and you do what I say. He does it because he loves us. So every motivator from God's perspective, in his perspective, is love. We're going to see that God is light. And that's a very simple contrast, and we'll illuminate this next week. There's a difference, and and you need to understand this going forward, that darkness is nothing more than the absence of light. Darkness is nothing more than the absence of light. If there's any light, there's light. But if there's no light, you have darkness. God is light. He's not darkness. In him there is no shadow of turning. And then we're also going to see that he's truth. So when we talk about Jesus being the way and the truth and the life, this is the truth. This is how we discern an imitation. So there are three things 
that this imitation consists of. And we're going to get to just one of them today. You see, we need to imitate God's love. And that has a positive side and a negative side. We need to imitate God's light, positive, negative side. We have to imitate his truth, positive, negative side. You see, very often we know what things are by what they are not. Amen? I can tell you what I'm not. If I go to a weight machine and I put 450 pounds on it, lay on the bench press bench, it's just going to stare at me. Why? Because I know these arms are not going to move that. So by a negative example, I can tell you that that's not what Jeff can do. And that's not what Jeff should even attempt to do because Jeff will hurt himself. So negative examples are actually one of the most powerful ways that we can learn things. Us guys, okay, let's confess our sin right now before our wives. We love fire, amen? I have no idea why guys love fire. There's two things guys love. If you ever want to get guys engaged in anything, pull out a knife and matches. Because <laughs> if someone can be cut or burned, it's all good for guys. Okay? It's just the way we work. Okay? But the negative example is you learn how to handle a knife because you don't cut your finger off because you've cut it once already. And you're like, that, that hurts. I'll keep the blade the other way. The same thing is true with fire. Now, a knife's a good thing, amen? If you have a hunk of meat, you don't want to have to chew it off. You want to cut it. It's a knife has a purpose. It's good for whittling. It, it's got lots of purpose to it. Matches the same way. But improperly used, you can get burned, amen? So by negative example, you hack yourself a couple of times. This guy's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. And by negative example, if I light that thing on fire and then stick my face in it, it burns and your hair comes off. So we do learn very effectively by drawing attention to some of the issues. Before we get there, let's look back to verse 32 in chapter 4. Notice what it says. Being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You know what that's telling me? Imitate Jesus. What did he do for you? What did he do for me? All you got to do is think on the cross. That's where these things come from, Okay. That's what's going on here, is this is an imitation of the cross. And, and I, I sit there and look at this outline that I have here. We, we could spend all day on just any one of these things. So I want to encourage you that the real deal, there's the second slide, if you would, please. The real deal is this. The positive example is Jesus himself. Think on these things. Kindness. It means acting charitably and benevolently towards others, just as Christ has done for us. It's love in action. Amen? So as we look at this concept of the real deal and this positive aspect of it being love, it's love in action. I'm not deserving of God's love. Matter of fact, I'm undeserving of God's love. And he certainly was under no obligation to love me. Matter of fact, your Bible says that while we were yet sinners, actively sinning, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen? So when we think about God's response to our sinfulness, his response, amazingly, crazy enough, is to love people who are in sin. Family of God, I think sometimes the church fails. I know I have. I've failed at loving people who are in sin. Sometimes I just get mad. Sometimes I just get upset. 
Sometimes I look at my calendar and I go, I don't have room for your sin. I, I look at the, the problem the third or the fourth time, it's just like, would you stop sinning? Can't you see that I don't have any more words? I've already used all the passages I know. But God's response is kindness, acting charitably and benevolently towards those who are doing whatever they're doing. God is always kind. He's never not kind. He's kind even when he has to whoop you. For those, again, who are parents, and I don't mean to belabor this point, but it applies very clearly in this instance. If you're a parent, your compassion towards your children overrides your desire to correct them. Amen? Doesn't it? Because even though you have to correct them, you need to correct them, okay? If your kids are in the kitchen, like mine, and they're cooking something up on the stove, you kind of want it to not be gasoline, okay? Not a good idea. You come in and go, those are volatile chemicals, okay? They're going to blow you to bits. But you don't come running in there and you know, grab the pan and slosh it all over the stove and kill everybody. You, you have to act compassionately, tenderly. And so the second characteristic that's here, it, this characterizes the heart of Father God's compassion. And it's most visible in what he did with his own son. Because what Jesus did was at the bequest of God the Father, wasn't it? God the Father said, this is the plan. You're going to go to the earth, you're going to die for them. And so he sacrifices his only begotten son. It shows me the heart of God. So I see the love of God in action. Now I see the heart of God in action. Because what we believe needs to result in action, family of God. It needs to reach that place. The next characteristic is simply forgiveness. There is nothing that characterizes the depth, or in this case, the love to death principle. You know, we use that phrase, don't we, in our English language? Oh, I love them to death. Have you ever thought what that actually means? You realize there's very few people, sometimes it's our military, that exemplifies this. But Jesus was the first and foremost. He loved us unto death. Amen? He did that by forgiving us. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, what he was saying was, I love them to death. I'm going to forgive them even though they don't deserve it, even though they're completely unworthy of it. That's so important to grasp this concept, because if you think of God some other way, you'll miss his actual character. Because God doesn't love you because you're good. God doesn't love you because you come to church. God doesn't love you because you own a really big Bible. God doesn't love you because you've got bumper stickers on your car. God doesn't love you because you're part of one group or not another. He loves you infinitely apart from those things. Always has. He's loved you to death. Literally. And then finally, on this slide, we need to walk in love. And this means taking that three parts, the love in action, the love in heart, and the love to death, and making it last forever. Because, see, we can do anything for a short period of time, right? Jesus loves eternally. God loves eternally. The Holy Spirit loves eternally. So our love for others needs to be, and really our love for ourselves. Can I say to you, it's okay for you to love yourself? We're going to get there here shortly, actually. It's okay for you to love yourself. There is a healthy self-love. 
Because if God so loved you that he gave Jesus, then you have some pretty serious values. So there is some self-love that I believe is clearly told to us in Scripture. It's not the self-love that the world has, but there is a self-love. Because if I'm not valuable to God, then I ought to be, wow, I'm one of God's kids. That gives you value. It gives you meaning. gives you purpose. It should cause you to wake up in the morning and go, man, God loves me. God loves me. You ever think of that? You get up in the morning, God loves me. That's purpose. That means you have value. So the love that the Lord showed to us doesn't have any boundaries. It's that boundless fruit of mercy and grace. And family, this gives us the backdrop for what I believe the rest of these negative things that are going to be mentioned uh, really help us to understand. You see what's happened in psychology. There, there's a there's a principle known as imprinting, and you see it sometimes. You'll take a dog and you give a you know a baby gosling to it, and the, the goose thinks it's a dog. It runs around, acts like a dog. People do the same thing. We, we learn by example very well. And so when someone gives us that extreme example, all of a sudden we're kind of imprinted with that nature. As Christians, we have been called into this world to give people an opportunity to imprint on Jesus. To kind of look at our lives and go, oh, that's what it means to be a Christian. And so he says, walk in love as Christ also loved us, gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Everything Jesus did, he did for the sole motivation that God is love. And so this plan that's being carried out and what we received from Christ is God is love. And so we've actually been imprinted with the nature of God, if you will, by looking at Jesus the Son. So as I look at Jesus the Son and all he did, Man, I think back on his life with the disciples, and it's like, you talk about love. What a bunch of knuckleheads. What a, you know, you, you look at the disciples, and it's just like, wow. And he loved them to the end, while Peter's denying Jesus is loving, while the twelve departed, Jesus is loving. You get the picture? The, the people closest to him abandoned him. And Jesus loved them anyway. I want to imprint like that. Man, make me that kind of person, God. Help me to live out that kind of life. He literally loved us to death. And so when you think of that, now you can kind of understand why there's some negative examples here. Because there are some things that love isn't. And I don't think anything messes people up in our world today like the wrong concept of love. How do I know that? Television, movies, books, magazines, what's on the airwaves. When you listen to people espouse love, you're going to come up with all the wrong type of love. Amen? Think about it. Is love purely sexual? Heavens, no. Is love purely death to self? That also is true in that sense But it's not the fullness of it, because love has all kinds of characteristics. I don't think Jesus wants us just running around, as some people do, just agonizing constantly that Christ died for me. There are people that do that, and I kind of feel sorry for their joy level. 
It's just like, you know, they want to whip themselves again. It's just like, oh, man, I can't believe it. You know, God died for me. So I need to kill myself. That's not what God's asking. He's not asking that at all. So to reinforce that point, knowing that we would be sitting here in the year 2013, notice what it says. Because it becomes very, very clear where he's going. But among you, verse 3 says, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these things are improper for God's holy people. You get the picture now? He gives a positive example and he says, here's how you can know that you're probably not modeling the right behavior. That you're not seeing things correctly. Because the world's view of human sexuality is pretty tweaked, isn't it? People fall in and out of love, don't they? Is that love to death? It's not, is it? So is it Christ's love? No, it's not. People can become enamored with one another and physically attracted to each other without being in love at all. In real love. And that's the kind of love, you know, the love that we see in our television is the love that if you have enough beer and a big enough cooler and you wear the right kind of clothes and drive the right kind of car, that all of a sudden, guys, I know this is a shock to you, but, you know, huge amounts of women in bikinis are going to chase you down and fall in love with you. That's the world's view, isn't it? That's what is shown to you on television. That's the view the world has. And you don't think that's true? Look at the reason for the breakup of homes. Well, I found somebody who was... You know, more attractive. I found somebody who will drink more beer with. I'll do whatever. You see, you don't fall out of real love. You fall into real love. And so the contrast here is be careful because the world has always thrown these things out at everybody. And I love the fact that it really kind of names all varieties of sexual sin here. And it's just simply giving us that the, the picture that Sex and love are not to be equated because you can have love and you can have sex. You're supposed to have sex in love in marriage. That's God's plan and design. You're not supposed to simply have that sexual relationship because it's not necessarily love. And that's why when people live together before they get married, married, their chances of divorce go up 80%. People who live together prior to marriage and engage as a married couple without being married, their chances of being divorced are 80% higher than the general population. Why is that? Because it's not based on love. It's based on physical attraction, maybe the car, the clothes, and the beer thing. Who knows? But it's not real love, generally speaking. And so he says, "Don't be, be careful here. And there's not supposed to be even a hint of these things. I love the fact that Scripture says that. Why? Because hinting at these things is really dangerous. Amen? You you can only play with these things for so long. That's why when we talked about dating, and we're going to get into some marriage and family living things here as we continue in this chapter. But but it's, it's interesting to me. The people don't set out to be way off base in, as a, in a general sense. They get a hint of something. And that hint of something all of a sudden gets them off track just enough to start believing another lie. And so they get restless in the truth. And they start believing those things. It's rather like if you've ever owned a large breed dog. And you have to exclude Labradors because they're nuts. And they're just, they, they're useless actually as guard dogs of any kind. 
but maybe a, a Rottweiler or a German Shepherd or a Labrador. And for purposes, I know there's some nice Rottweilers, so don't take offense if I've offended your dog, okay? But, but you know, most Rottweilers, are they're kind of menacing looking. You, you know, you have to keep a Rottweiler under control. You're not going to take your two-year-old and, you know, somebody's 240-pound Rottweiler. Here, play with that. Not going to be good. It's not wise. Why? Because they're no longer in control. You know, there's nobody there guarding and guiding against what that dog might do. That's the same thing with flirting with sin. While you have it under control, while you're praying in the Spirit and acting godly and reading your word, and you're training that spiritual side of you to resist the things that are dangerous, these things that are listed here. And I don't want to belabor them. It's just helping you to understand the principle that if you don't do your part, or worse yet, you do what our world is doing right now, which says, well, that type of sin's okay. You're playing with the snarling Rottweiler. That's what's going on. Not a hint of it should be in our lives. I had a guy come to me two, three days ago now. Well, you know, I've got a medical marijuana card. And I asked him, I said, so how did you get the prescription? Well, I have undiagnosed pain. And I said, where is your undiagnosed pain? He says, well, it comes and goes. And I said, so what you're telling me is, is that you want to smoke dope because it makes you feel goofy. And he goes, well, you know, uh, you know, sometimes I just have a tough time dealing with things. Guys, it, you're flirting with something that is a hint of going someplace you shouldn't go. Same thing with that first beer, that second beer. And again, I'm not trying to put anybody under legalistic bondage here. I'm simply pointing out what Scripture says, a hint of those things. Playing with them is a hint. Trying to figure out where the boundary is, and I've shared with you before. Kids ask me this question all the time. Well, how many beers is too many? How much petting in a dating relationship is sin? Yeah, they want to know where the line is. Okay, so if we do this, we're okay, yeah? No, not even a hint if you want to imitate Jesus. Not a hint. Not a hint. There shouldn't be any. The answer is this much, zero. And again, that's not legalism. That's simply saying, Scripture says, don't let a hint of these things be in your life if you want to imitate Christ. And imitating Christ is the surest way that we know that we're His. Goes on in verse four. I want to wrap this together, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version because it gives a little bit of clearer emphasis to it. It says, "Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, but instead let there be thanksgiving." It doesn't. It's not in context. When something's in context, you ever had somebody who cannot tell the joke because they can't tell the punchline? Isn't that weird? You know, they go through the whole, you're just like, yeah, okay, it's coming. And all of a sudden, and nothing comes out. You're just like, what was that? It's just a shock to you. It's just like you're incapable of telling a joke. The same is true on the negative side. If you're professing Christ, why would you want to use these things that say exactly the opposite? So when you get down to the punchline, oh, that's kind of like the world. That's not like Jesus at all. Who is it exactly you're imitating? Because the punchline doesn't go with the joke. The, the water is kind of foul smelling. 
It, the spring is a little dirty. It, it doesn't fit. You, you sit there and you think about it. It's like, wow. But you know what? In our world, and, and, and again, please, I'm trying to be really gentle here. It drives me nuts listening to kids talk today. Because they use words that are clearly another word, okay? But so that they can, just like a Jewish Pharisee, not actually say the word, they say another word that means the word, so when they say the word, you still know what they meant. That's flirting with it. That's the type of thing, and again, that's not to put anybody in a bondage. It's just to say, consider what you're saying. What is the association of that word? You see, because I, I can tell you something else and make you think exactly what I'm thinking. I can use other words to mean words that I shouldn't say. And guess what you think? You think the word that I'm trying not to say. Let no hint of it be among you. And so it talks about our actions and it talks about our speech. And then it goes on to verse 5, and I want to clean this up. And it says, and this is kind of not a fun passage to read, but I think it's here in a very gracious sense. You can be sure, the New Living Translation says, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater. Notice the focus here. He has another God. You have the God of beer. You got the God of sex. You got the God of vulgar language. You see, I don't want to pick on anybody. I want to simply say, if you worship at some other altar, you're an idolater. So the issue is not that you sin. The issue is that you're unrepentant of the sin. The issue is pervasively, persistently, unabashedly, unashamedly, you look God in the eye and you say, you know what? I don't believe that it's wrong to fornicate. I don't think it's wrong to be a drunk. I don't think that you were correct in telling me how to live my life. That means you just became your own God. You have said with your actions and with your words, I don't believe you, God. I believe what I think, and I'm going to persist in this way of living. Family of God, make no mistake. Scripture says that there's hope for every repentant sinner. Case, David, the great David. If ever there was a case for the hope that we have in Christ for grace, it's David. I mean, the dude's a mess, okay? Let's face it. Adulterous, murdering, lying, thieving, conniving David, after whom God says he's a man after my own heart. Isn't that nuts? That's what grace can do. So make no mistake, grace is great. But also don't make the mistake that grace is cheap. That grace is so absolutely overwhelming that you can sin with impunity and then look God in the eye and say, you didn't mean that. And that's the problem that we have in our world. We're sinners saved by grace. Amen? 
I am a sinner saved by, I remain a sinner who is saved by grace to this day. I happen to be a saint because of the blood of Christ, but I'm still a sinner saved by grace. I walk in grace every day. I need the Lord's mercy every day. But make no mistake, because I'm a child of God, and because he does have a standard laid out in his word, that's how I'm supposed to live my life. And so it says, if you're one of those people who persist in open rebellion to God, you got two, two options. One is you're not saved at all. Number two is you were saved and you lost your salvation. Now, let me tell you something. Neither of those two things are good. So I don't care which view you have. doesn't matter to me. The result's the same. It's eternal damnation. So why, why, why would anyone ever want to flirt with that? Why would someone who's a recipient of grace like myself want to live my life in such a way that I don't know whether I'm saved or not? That I lose all my assurance because I'm walking in utter rebellion to the things that God has said. It's a doctrine that I've shared with you before. That third slide is up there. Yes, it is. Good. It's, it's a doctrine called antinomian thought or antinomianism. And it simply means two Greek words. It means against the law. It was a problem then. It's a problem today. And family, we need to not make it a problem. God's standards are God's standards. And and thinking that you're truly a child of God while walking in open rebellion to the plain teaching of God's word is a sure path to put you in the category of what it says in verse 5. I don't want to be there. Do you want to be there? The only way to avoid being there is to say, God said it. I believe it. That's what I'm going to do. Antinomianism says God's grace is so great that I can do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. Can I remind you that in Romans chapter 6 it says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace might increase or grace might abound? We died to sin. How can we live any longer in it? If we're truly children of God, then we are not sinless, as in without sin in its entirety, but we sin less. Amen? We should be worse at sinning. We should do less of it. And if that is not you, if you can look me in the eye and say, you know what, I am okay getting drunk every single day and I think I am a drunk Christian, I can look you in the eye and say, not so fast, smarty pants. Because your Bible says it. If you say, well, we're in a committed relationship, I can say not committed enough because it didn't take you to the altar to get married. Do you understand what I'm saying? And again, this is not legalism. God's standard. The one we're to imitate said these things. Not my doing. Got a problem? Blame God. Tell God your issue. I don't like your Bible. Well, uh, Jeff, my Bible is the one that says you're saved by grace and through faith. Oh, that's right. So if I'm saved by grace and through faith, then I ought to live the way he lays out. Because he is now Lord. Amen? Antinomianism says doesn't matter what you do. It's so cheap. Grace is so cheap. And frankly, Calvary chapels have been accused of teaching this doctrine, which we do not, by the way. The grace is so cheap, you can just do whatever you want. Not true. That is heretical. Matter of fact, 
1 Timothy chapter 4 calls it the doctrines of demons. Basically says you make up what you want God to be. I want to encourage you. God's standard is very high. There's grace for our failures. There's grace for our weaknesses. There's grace for our faux pas. There is unending grace for those who are repentant. There is unending grace for those who say, God, I'm just so sorry. And you mean it in your heart. There's grace for that person. But your Bible says there is no grace for those who are unrepentant because it means that the Holy Spirit's not in you. You are declaring with your actions that you don't believe in grace because grace changes us. Grace causes us to live differently, not all at once. And it is not universally true that once you get saved, you're going to all of a sudden become completely sinless. I've made that clear. But if you can look at an issue and say, you know what, I am okay living in this sin, then you have a problem with God, not Jeff. You have a problem with God. His word says on four occasions, and such were some of you, and those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, why am I emphasizing that? Because I don't want you to have an antinomian view of God's grace. I don't want you to think that there's no standard. You see, I'm to imitate Christ. He gave me a standard. I know very much of what I'm supposed to be and not be. And so when someone comes to me, I can tell them God expects you to be morally upright. God expects you to be of high integrity. And God expects you to be loving. That's his expectations of his kids. That's what we're supposed to mimic. Because God is completely of monumental morality. Amen? Monumental integrity. Monumental love. That's our standard. It's not, the, it's not the cheap grace that says, well, I can just keep doing whatever I want. You were bought and paid for with the price, your Bible says. That price was Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. That's not cheap. That's the most valuable thing in the universe. And so I want to end this morning by reminding you, please don't be a professor of Christ without being a possessor of Christ. Don't, don't just be a name only. Be in word and deed, because that's how we have that assurance. That's how I am sure of my salvation, because I actually do kind of worry about the things that I fall in and stumble in. And if that's you this morning, you're on the right path. If you're worried about your sin, you're going to be fine. But if you ever reach that place to where you're no longer worried, you'd be very scared. That's when these verses come in handy. You can look back and go, wow, am I abiding in Christ? Am I walking as he walked? Am I loving as he loved? Am I living as he lived? Because if you do, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Amen? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Please walk in that. You'll be fine. Don't walk according to the flesh. Because you're going to struggle and stumble. You're going to be in places you don't want to be. You're going to go places you don't want to go. 
abide in the vine. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this attentive bunch, Lord, as we gather together to hear from your voice. Lord, I want to pray if there's anybody here who's just struggling with some pattern of sin and God, it's left them unassured of their destiny, God. You want us to be sure. And so as we walk in love, as we walk in light, as we walk in truth, God, we have that assurance. Help us to do that. And Lord, if we need to do business with you today, maybe we spend a time away. Lord, I pray that as we finish and close, that there just be that simple prayer of offering our lives back to you, as Romans 12 says, as living sacrifices. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your wonderful grace, your marvelous grace that does cover all of our sin. Lord, help us to walk in love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.